A man struts into a packed laundromat wearing a black shirt and jeans. He's incredibly handsome, has olive skin and dark comb-back hair. The guy takes off his sunglasses and just glances around. He opens up a washing machine, but then instead of dumping in a bag of dirty clothes, he takes off his shirt to the delight of the waiting women in the laundrette. And then there's a close-up of the man pulling off his belt and unbuttoning the front of his jeans. He takes his jeans off and puts them and the shirt inside the machine. He's now sitting in nothing but white boxer shorts in the middle of all of the ogling customers. What I've just described over the original soundtrack is the Levi's Laundrette ad. It was spearheaded by John Hegarty, the founder of BBH in England. Before this ad, Levi's was having a tough time the Levi's 501 jeans weren't doing particularly well. After the ad aired, sales of Levi's 501 jeans went up 800%. Demand outstripped supply. And the ad didn't just sell jeans, it also led to a spike in boxer short sales. The ad was a huge success that took the company from a moment of crisis to the number one selling jean by the end of the 1980s. It's a classic example of success in advertising and comparatively a pretty wholesome example of how sex sells. I'm Damien Bradfield and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad and the ugly. We've got with us someone today who I thought would be the best person to talk about this particular topic. <laughs> Don't you think it's funny that we asked you to do the episode on sex? Hmm, I wonder why. Here to discuss everything sex in advertising is Kate Hutchinson. She's a London-based freelance culture writer and hosts a monthly radio show on Worldwide FM. She's also a podcast host and she hosts The Last Bohemians podcast. And most importantly, I think it's someone who I thought could actually talk quite openly and from a very important cultural perspective add a lot to, to this conversation. So welcome, Kate. Thanks for daring to come on this podcast. I'll do my best. So I was born in the UK in 1977, and like most children in the UK, we had a lot of exposure to Cadbury Flake. For those of us you know, that were lucky enough to go to the coast in the weekends, you would go down to Brighton or somewhere like that, buy a Mr. Whippy soft ice, and there would be a piece of dry chocolate stuffed into the top of it. And for those of you in the US that have no idea what a flake is, a flake is a peculiar, dry, phallic-like piece of chocolate that came wrapped in a little yellow piece of plastic that for some reason in the UK we decided that we were going to stick it inside a Mr. Whippy soft ice cream and make it a, a luxurious item that if you're on holiday in the, on the coast in England, that's what you would aspire to, walking along the promenade and probably sticking in your brother or sister's face. From... The 1960s onwards, Flake was synonymous with beautiful women staring longly at a chocolate bar, this phallic dry chocolate bar. And the woman in the ad and it would inevitably pull down the wrapper, close their eyes, and put the chocolate bar seductively into her mouth. Enjoy Flake. Cadbury's Flake. Fold upon fold of creamy milk chocolate. This campaign lasted for about 50 years. So do you remember them? Can you remember the Flake ads? 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a baby of the eighties, 1986. So I went back in and, and typed in flake 1990s ad into YouTube just to jog my memory. And I had this totally, you know, this total sort of lightning bolt moment where I thought, my God, I remember exactly that advert. I remember exactly what I used to think and how I used to feel. It's when the one from 1992 in particular. So I remember seeing this on telly and it's when they tried to go classy. It was a woman with a pixie haircut in the bath and 1992 was also the year that Stay by Shakespeare's sister was at the top of the UK single charts for eight weeks. And the advert had this kind of similarly sort of creepy, gothy vibe. And from then on, I, I just always assumed you ate chocolate naked in the bath. That's what I, I just, I thought that was what you did from, from then on. And um, also what I remember about that advert is that there's a, a moment in it where the flakiest or driest chocolate, as you said, crumbles onto her lip and she tries to sexily move it into her mouth without using her tongue and and I remember trying for you know for, for a year to do that move Cadbury's Flake the crumbliest flakiest milk chocolate in the world I mean it was so it was so brilliant and it made people want to copy it I mean it clearly worked right I mean if this was working these, these ads were running for 50 years and it was pretty much always the same sort of format so even in the 1960s, you know, there was pretty much the same concept of an attractive woman eating this piece of chocolate and having the same issues getting it around her face. That that seemed to appeal to a lot of people. I mean, you're an intelligent woman. Why would you think to yourself for a second, oh, I should try and eat more seductively and get it around my face and then men will love me? I think that I was just, I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be that, that sexy. I mean, the women were all attractive. I mean, in the 1960s advert, in one of them, it's, you know, the idea is, you know, you two can eat chocolate and then suddenly you'll be walking down a beach with a horse. I mean, it was, you know, like you said, it was very aspirational. And um, and I think probably, yeah, the young me was impressionable in that way and, and was really into the sort of subtle eroticism of it. It wasn't so much about the fact that the flake was, you know, sorry to break it to you guys, obviously supposed to be a penis. It was more just the fact that I could have this kind of, I could be this sexy woman alone on my own, eating, having a nice time with some chocolate. Oh, so I, to I totally misinterpreted it. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank God. We could just end this podcast now. <laughs> it's not about sex. <laughs> It's about women feeling empowered to eat chocolate on their own in deep water. I wish I had more data. I mean, because it, it might well have been that it was purely women buying these chocolate bars. Did you did you live in the UK for some time? Yeah, yeah, until I was 18. So we did literally eat. I mean, we, we lived off Cadbury's Flakes every summer. But did blokes eat them? Yeah, in you know, stuffed inside a Mr. Whippy soft ice. Then, yeah, you would do. But I wouldn't, I would never have gone to the newsagent with my, you know, 20 pence worth of pocket money to go and buy a Cadbury Flake. It is kind yeah. it is kind of amazing that they stayed the same for five long decades. But that's the that was the point right. I think that was the era. This era was really very much about sex. It was very much about stereotypes. It was It was about the the male gaze really, wasn't it? I mean, we say we say it was about Sex, but really, you know, when you look at the flake adverts, the Wonder Bra advert, I mean, all of these adverts that we look at that are to do with sex, especially the Calvin Klein advert in 1981 with, with Brooke Shields, it's about the male gaze. There's nothing 
in there that's like about female pleasure and females, women's perception of sex. It's all about, you know, look at these hot women looking hot, um, doing suggestive things with chocolate bars or suggestive things in jeans in the case of the Calvin Klein one. It was just about, you know, men in advertising boardrooms making adverts that they thought would appeal to other men and make women feel inferior because they didn't look like the models. That's kind of my my reading of it now, I guess. The Calvin Klein I we're talking about was Brooke Shields um, wearing Calvin Kleins. It's We're, you know, in the early 80s. And Brooke at this time is only 15 years old and she's posing quite awkwardly, fully clothed, but sitting on the ground, leaning on one side and her legs are wide open and she says very suggestively, and I'll try to do it exactly as she said it, do you want to know what becomes... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm going to do it even more suggestively. Do you want to know what... (laughs) (laughs) It's so bad you can't say... I mean, that's the thing. It's so bad. You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. It's like, what what do you think outraged people at the time? And I was thinking... You know, probably the fact that she was 15. Yeah. And I guess playing on that whole sort of Lolita-esque coquettishness, you know, in the advert. But And, and it's confrontational. You know, she's she's looking directly at the camera. She's she's fully clothed. She's got her legs splayed. But she's clothed, you know. She's not she's not naked. I have to be careful here because, you know, there, there's the argument that Brooke Shields doesn't feel very comfortable about that advert now or she felt coerced or, you know, had had she been 15 in 2019, she might feel differently about making an advert like that. However, looking at it now, objectively, it's very confrontational. There's a slight sort of, um, she's taking a little bit of ownership over that. And I think that sort of teenage sexuality is something that is, you know, was not around at the time and was very shocking. And, and the censors, I think, quite rightly got got iffy about it. I think it was the concept that she wasn't wearing any underwear. Isn't it? Is that she's there and she's, you know, she's just not wearing underwear. That wasn't what I took from that advert. I, I didn't immediately go, oh, Brooke Shields, no pants or knickers or briefs. or It was more the pose that was really confrontational, I think, to me rather than the fact that she wasn't bothering to wear any pants <laughs> or knickers or briefs. Okay. Wow, that says something about the difference between you and me. The thing is, is that Calvin Klein, I don't know if this is the first time he did it, but this is the first sort of um, instance that I've seen of him kind of, I guess, playing with with teenagers, with underage kids, putting them in suggestive positions, asking them to say suggestive stuff. And and this was the sort of beginning of it. And then it just kind of continued through the 90s in these kind of shock waves of suggestiveness about underage sex. What did you what did you make of all of those campaigns that he did? So I think it's not just him, right? I think that is that is the era. And the era was very much about trying to you know, shock as much as you possibly could. We've gone through that punk era. We're now into an era where, um, you know, we're, we're trying to express and be a lot more free around sex and, and sexuality. Um, you know, Madonna is in the charts. And, I mean, her book, what was it called? Sex. Yeah, what to the point. Called? Yeah, it's just called it was Sex. sex right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, can, I remember we were in school at the time and somebody managed to get hold of a copy of this book 
And, you know, there, there was Madonna in bed with multiple guys. Um, and we had it for all of about 20 minutes before somebody came in and confiscated it from us because it was absolutely outrageous and that sort of stuff should never have, you know, never be in display. And Madonna was banned or something like that. I can't remember. Female sexuality. It's just super offensive to people. <laughs> something like that. But in that era too, I mean, not just in the 80s, right? But there was, and there is until quite recently, quite a lot of shock and awe tactics used in advertising in general. And if we look at American Apparel, um, I mean, some of the most controversial ads, I think, of, of all time um, in the way that they used potentially underage girls, guys, huge amount of sexual innuendo, some nudity, and I don't know, maybe not necessarily even intelligently. I'm not sure if there is such a thing in in this sort of genre of advertising, but American Apparel, I'm assuming you had it in the UK too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, American Apparel was kind of early 2000s, and this was the era in the UK when Indian indie pop was massive in the charts. And for a time when I used to go out clubbing in, in London, that was what people used to wear, was the American Apparel leggings and the gold lame body with a bit of side boob hanging out. And if you really wanted to go the whole hog and sort of a bit of a nod to Electro Clash, you would get the leg warmers also. And for guys, yeah, it was very much about the hoodie and probably teamed with some kind of polo shirt. And that that advertising was really powerful because it spoke to the Vice generation. You know, the Vice generation, or at least my interpretation of it, was about people kind of resting youth culture you know back for themselves and sort of reflecting reality and in the case of american apparel the adverts i think what they were they were really kind of um for me really sort of bedded in with that sort of vice mentality of like you know we just want to party all night like we we you know we just want to fuck everything we're fu- you know it doesn't matter we're like totally comfortable with sex and everything like blah student culture like all of these things that are all coming you know like we're into porn da 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 we like doing porn sex moves that's cool it makes us cool you know it's that sort of mentality that was uh, reflected in the media at the time and then I, I think American Apparel just kind of amplified that what else did they have in their adverts they had just very young girls Dov, Dov Charney himself, the the founder, sure. also an interesting character. Sure. So for those unfamiliar with the American Apparel ads, they're a combination of sort of editorial style photography, generally with a young person or young people in bed, generally half clothed or uh, just wearing boxer shorts. And the one the one ad we're talking about in particular is with uh, supposedly again Dov Charney the founder of American Apparel, um, with his legs splayed and a young girl uh, suggestively licking his boxer shorts. Maybe he dropped a piece of Cadbury Flake on them. Um, Just to note, he hasn't shaved his legs. Um, He is quite well known for being hairy. But it's a very editorial style shot, right? I do think it it does feel like it's taken from a page of Vice. Yeah, and it's kind of, it kind of spoke to that sort of, you know, those Terry Richardson editorials where he would be in the photographs with a half-naked pop star or a half-naked model. Right, yeah, I remember that Terry Richardson released the model Kate Upton dancing. She's in a very, very tiny red and blue bikini 
And in his intro, it's not clear if he's looking at her face or her boobs. And she starts dancing and it's half mesmerizing and also half creepy. Hi, I'm Terry Richardson. And only in America tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Kate Upton demonstrating the... Cat Daddy. Take it away, Kate. All right. Okay, go. Hit it, go for she did say later that she was absolutely horrified that he'd published it and she thought that she was just filming it for fun 27 million views later you know it was always like the man the older man and in this case you know the owner of the clothing brand in a questionable position with a much much younger looking girl Um, and you're not really sure if you know, how old she is. And that's the point. Again, it comes back to this idea of male gaze and power imbalances. And it's a guy that ran this company. It was a guy that was having the vision for these photo shoots. And that was the icky thing, I think. Of course, you know, um, much later, it transpired that he had, um, he's allegedly... Yeah, make sure you use that word, allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly, allegedly, reportedly, <laughs> he's in hot water about some of his misdemeanors, basically, um, with some of his former staff. Yeah. And so obviously that casts, again, that the adverts of that time in a new light. I mean, possibly at the time, possibly there were people that thought that this spoke to, you know, there were, there were girls of pubic hair um, and, 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 and armpit hair. And, you know, maybe it was, maybe it was liberating and maybe everyone just needed to chill out. And maybe this was like, you know, reflected the young kids taking over. And this is like our style and our time now. But looking at it now, knowing that what we know, it does feel particularly icky, those, those adverts. So how about the infamous Dolce & Gabbana ads? So in 2007, Dolce & Gabbana came out with super glossy, um, you know, typical Dolce & Gabbana advertising that would have gone into Vogue or Condé Nast or somewhere else featuring what looks like gang rape scenes. So they, they may not be, but that that is what it appears to be with somebody laying on the ground and then multiple people standing around pretending to unbutton themselves or get ready or whatever they were doing, who knows. But... Um, Stylistically, I think a very different approach to American apparel, but less journalistic, perhaps, but equally shocking. Yeah, I mean, can you just imagine being in the boardroom for those Dutch and Gabbana ads in 2007? It's like, so guys, what we're going to do is we're going to get four escapees from the Tomorrowland Festival in terrible sunglasses, and we're going to have them pinning down a woman, surrounding her, pinning her down so that she can't get away and she's going to be looking off to the side forlornly. I mean, can you just imagine being in the room for that where people were going, yes, yes, um, yes, that sounds... That sounds fantastic. And what we'll also do is we'll do a male version where um, there's a topless male model lying down and a guy unzipping his pants, but the male is not restrained. So um, it's just going back through some of the adverts that have shocked or that have been particularly racy, you do think just what were the steps? Why did nobody at any point go, hang on, guys? this looks a bit rapey, you know? I was really interested talking to you because I think so much of what we're discussing here is just popular culture, right? We're not really talking about advertising. We're not really talking about 
um, you know, what's happening in politics or anything else. What we're talking about is popular culture and how that's been reflected in the way that people are being asked to consume. What's happening that makes boardroom decisions or company decisions or whatever else take us down this path of having to be so in your face? It's bizarre, isn't it? Because in the 90s, you had... Well, A, you had the sort of, um, you know, youth culture magazines like The Face and ID who were really sort of reflecting what was going on in pop culture. They were reflecting underground scenes. They were at the coalface of what was cool and what was hip and what people thought and what people were interested in. You had the sort of the rise of... um of ladette culture, let's say. So women boozing like the lads and um, wearing what they wanted to wear and, you know, sticking two fingers up Liam Gallagher style. And that sort of culture was going on. In the UK, you had things like The Girly Show. What's that? It was a pop culture TV show presented by women talking about, in a, in a fun, relatable way, about pop culture and about about being a young woman. It was like a very archetypal 90s show. Uh, you know, it was of the MTV uh, generation. And then, like you said, you had Madonna's sex book. You had one of the world's most famous people, most iconic pop stars, presenting her sexuality in a way that she wanted to, that was totally brazen and refreshing and empowering and titillating and all of those things and fearless, totally fearless. And then you had people like Bjork, you had Tori Amos, you had PJ Harvey, you had this kind of rise of strong women in rock. So it felt like certainly in the 90s, at least, women were exploring the the whole kind of, I think it was the third wave of feminism was happening with Riot Girl. Um, where, you know, as a sort of counterpoint to the very male-dominated grunge and rock scenes, more women were starting bands, they were doing women-only shows, they were talking about pornography in a refreshing way, about sex work. I mean, feminism was happening. And yet, in the advertising world, it felt, you know, you had the Wonderbra advert with Eva Herzegova, with her wonderfully buoyant baps, um, with Hello Boys. And so... I I feel like the advertising world wasn't really reflecting what was going on. And I'm not sure why that disconnect happened. So if we could just elaborate on that Wonderbright ad, because again, maybe some people don't remember it. Um, But that Wonderbright ad was Eva Herzegova. She's wearing a lacy black bra in underwear, of course, wearing undies, naturally. Um, And she's looking down at herself and smiling and there's a line next to it that just says, hello, boys. Now, when I was shown the ad again, I totally missed the fact that she was staring at her own breasts. I thought she was just looking down at the ground and saying, hello, boys, as in to me. But that there's a double entendre in this, which I had no idea even existed. But I can vividly remember that ad. I think also in the UK, there were multiple crashes along the highways because of that ad. <laughs> Because I don't think anybody had ever put such buoyant breasts onto a poster before. And certainly Eva Herzegova was very attractive. And I'm pretty sure that cars crashed. Maybe even people died. I mean, they were 
breasts worth dying for, really. The crashes, it was a, it's a great marketing story, isn't it? You know, we put up this billboard and it was so racy that, uh, lorry drivers, you know, couldn't control themselves as they sort of, you know, had a wank down the motorway or whatever it was. I don't know if they were doing that. Oh my God. <laughs> Even if there were no crashes, it was a great story. There were definitely crashes. I'm not sure about deaths. I made the death bit up. What I find really (laughs) amusing about that advert is that she's looking down at her cleavage to die for with a sort of, yeah, this Marilyn Monroe style, who me, gasp, as if she can't quite believe that her tits are so nice and they're so perky. But I think that advert's also quite fun. You know, it's playful. It's, It's not taking itself too seriously, despite obviously being aimed at the male gaze. There is a sort of sense of playfulness about one's sexuality, which I think is definitely missing um, in 2019, for sure. Right. And I mean, this ad is 1994, right? It's not, I mean, maybe that's a long time ago for a lot of people. It doesn't feel that long ago. And authors think that, you know, she looks like she's in control, right? It doesn't look like she's being manipulated or, you know, controlled by anybody else. I mean, it's, it's an ad that, you know, in theory... She's decided to be part of, and she's proud of the way her body looks. The Hello Boys line, perhaps a little bit, you know, misleading, because of course she's trying to make sure that she's attractive to just men. But it feels a lot less harmful than the likes of Dolce & Gabbana and American Apparel, all of which have pretty much been pulled. So Hello Boys is no longer Hello Boys, but Hello Me. Um, Cadbury's Flake just now focuses on the dryness. And we've you know, changed our approach entirely from the way that we're trying to use sex to sell products into something that I don't even know what we're doing today. Kate, what are we doing in terms of trying to sell stuff today? Um, I think that Generation Z or, you know, young people have sort of created their own demands. They've created their own needs and and what they look for and, and what speaks to them. And it's really about breaking down gender stereotypes rather than um, using sex in the sort of suggestive manner that it might have been used in the 90s or 2000s. You know, the, the sex ads of the 90s and 2000s, they weren't driving conversation largely about sex. I mean, a lot of the LGBT campaigns and the sort of AIDS awareness campaigns certainly were, like Benison's AIDS ads, for example. But it was more about titillation and it was about sex as something shocking and taboo. But, you know, now sex isn't shocking and taboo. I mean, the porn is, you know, enormous and its popularity could be one of the reasons why um, sex and cinema is on the decline, for example. Um, there's just not as many uh, films that are being rated R uh, on the basis of nudity and sex these days. So, you know, it's right. it's it's not shocking. Um, and I think that young people are looking for, they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for, um, they respond to diversity, inclusion, awareness, justice, campaigning for issues. You know, this is, this is the Greta Thunberg generation. Um, and they're much more interested in, in social change than they are getting naked between the sheets, so it seems. So, I mean, still the, I mean, the reason that advertising exists, and it's always been, if you've ever worked in an advertising agency or worked with one, there's always a bit of a mix up between whether people working there are creating art or whether they're creating, you know, work to sell products. Mm. 
right? And sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect internally. But at the end of the day, you know, advertising is there to sell products, right? To to get somebody to do something or to get somebody to buy something. Mm. And previously, we were using shock and awe tactics to to get people's attention. The attention economy has moved on, right? And we're no longer using those tactics to to try to get people to, um, you know, to look over here or to to follow me there. We've become desensitized to sex. And actually, maybe that's a bit of a shame because it means that I think there is a sort of certain fruitiness, a sort of playfulness that perhaps has been lost in our kind of maelstrom of identity politics. I think you're you're right, right? I mean, it's it's something that is... It's very apparent that I think, uh, you know, teenagers are having less sex and that there's a fair amount of studies that says that, you know, sex doesn't sell. But I also think that it's, as you say, right, there is a certain amount of raunchiness that does make it sort of attractive. Well, there needs to be a certain amount of cheekiness, I think, and playfulness. But at the moment, there's definitely an, an issue, right, in that people don't know what they can any longer get away with and what they can what they can and can't say. And certainly as a brand, it's a very complicated time, right, if you're a company and you want to play... Um, on the racy side. It's a very complicated thing to get right. Very complicated. But I think we've seen in TV, for example, a lot of great television that's been made from the perspective of the female gaze. I mean, um, Jill Soloway, for mm-hmm. example, is somebody who's been very good at that with the, her TV adaptation of I Love Dick. And we can even see that in the sex scenes between uh, June and the guy who plays the eye in The Handmaid's Tale. So uh, not the bits where she has to be a baby make- maker, but the bits where she's reclaiming sex for herself. I mean, the way that that's filmed is very much I feel like from the female perspective and and um and and I think that you know it it almost feels like sometimes things can be a little bit too puritanical in this sort of you know in this sort of era of identity politics that we're that we're heading into and perhaps we're in danger of you know of that sort of a little a little raunch a little suggestiveness a little eroticism being lost you know, it was great when Prince did it and it was great when Madonna did it. <laughs> no, but you make a good point, right? I think if so long as the perspective is changing. So what we've talked about have basically been ads that have been very much from the perspective of what we assume to be, you know, a male director or a male lead mm. um, asking and suggesting that a female character should make herself attractive to a male audience or maybe female audience, but we're presuming it's a male audience. Well, I think... Um, you know, the point you're making is that if that perspective changes, then it's still okay. You could still use sex, right? I think, I think it's, a, yeah, and it's a case of whether, do people, does it, is it even effective anyway? I mean, but, you know, speaking as a woman, I, I like sex and I like sexy stuff. And I think that's something still to be explored for women, perhaps. I don't know. I feel like men have had enough sexy adverts and there need to be more sexy adverts for women is what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe you're getting into a bigger issue here that, again, you know, when we look at the makeup of the of boards of companies, when we look at the makeups of, uh, you know, the C-suite um, within different companies, there, I mean, there still is today a huge imbalance in the number of female characters or female leads in these organizations. So how can they possibly be making those sort of decisions, right? Definitely. And I don't know what the advertising industry looks like anymore, but I'm presuming it's still quite a lot of men who at the moment I would I would suggest are quite anxious about getting into anything to do with sex and advertising. And also, you know, it's just it's just safer and more on trend and more interesting to align yourself with an issue rather than to um do something suggestive or erotic in 
in that way. I mean, maybe sex has just had its time. Maybe it's just had its time and it'll come back in some way or form. But maybe we've just had enough sex for now, Damien. What do you think is going to be, you know, what are we going to be doing in the future to get people's attention? Because that, that is what it comes down to, right? You've, you've got something new. Kate, you know, Hutchinson's going to launch a new podcast. How are you going to get somebody today to be engaged and to, to look at you differently or to consider you differently from the rest? It seems to me that the adverts that are making the most impact are the ones with clear messages. So in in terms of sex, for example, dating websites and dating apps seem to be kind of queering adverts. They're, they're using the sort of, you know, couple kissing, but actually it's a lesbian couple kissing passionately. Or OkCupid's, okay they've got, they had this advert which had two women fully clothed in each other's arms and one holding a rose in their teeth. It's, it's not about raunch. It's about being real. And, um, right. And kind of outside of the sort of sex domain, but moving more towards sort of trying to um, challenge gender stereotyping, you've got things like Smirnoff's Equalising Music campaign, which made a massive impact, you know, across the advertising industry where Smirnoff and I think Spotify and maybe PRS and some other people teamed up to try and bring more women into music production, to bring more women onto music bills and lineups um, and festivals and such. So it feels like the most powerful, most impactful adverts are really kind of moving towards this idea of trying to push social change forward. A movement towards social change seems like such a positive shift in strategy. Yeah, what I find really curious is that you know, despite all of this, you know, raunch may be gone, but, you know, sexism is still very much alive and well. And while we've got a sort of massive, we've seen a massive spike in sort of empowering female messages and adverts like, you know, Dove and This Girl Can, you've still got, you know, Pritstick Pink for Girls advert, for example, um, or adverts aimed at men that are full of sort of slut-shaming messages. So I think we've still got quite a way to go. So, Kate, we're going to wrap up, but I want to say thanks very much for for taking the time to take us on this journey of sex and advertising. And it's more than that, right? I think it's about it's about culture and hopefully what we've learned. I would like to think that you're no longer going to be dreaming of sitting in a bath, wiping Cadbury's chocolate flake around your mouth to make yourself attractive to a, to a man or a woman. Um, but that you're thinking about, you know, and, and what we're using advertising to do is really to, to be a bit more authentic um, and to make sure that we're selling stuff around values that actually people can associate with and that feel like they're genuine and moving away from having to use shock and awe tactics to being a little bit more real in uh, in the world thank you very much kate for making the time for joining us thanks for having me also um i'm going to go and walk around at home in my wonder bra just for myself now yeah <laughs> That's our show today. Special thanks to Kate Hutchinson for sharing her expertise on why sex sells. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing Rachel Swaby. Our supervising producer is John Asante and our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from We Transfer, produced in association with Neon Harm Media. Thanks so much for listening.
This episode of Influence is brought to you by Chinny Chin Chin, the exotic pet walking service. Now, we're lucky today that in the studio we have Matt, who is not only our head of sales, but also an exotic pet walker. That's true, Damien. You know, sales by day, exotic pet walking by night. And right now I can just tell you that we have an extremely great sale going on right now. So if you have three chinchillas, we'll actually walk the fourth one for free. That's amazing. If you've never seen four chinchillas on one leash, whew, you're in for a treat. And where do you walk them? Oh, we walk them all over the all, all over the place. Um, we can take them on hikes. So if you want to do like a, like a chinchilla type of retreat, um, we're capable of doing that. We have the bandwidth for it and uh, the safety gloves for it, for it all. What does it cost? Um, right now we're taking out chinchillas uh, free of charge, actually. That's how passionate we are uh, for walking the chinchillas at Chinny Chin Chin. So um, your, free, your free, first free walk is on us. And after that, we'll just keep walking them. And I've heard a rumor that on podcasts, generally there's a code that's given out. Is there a secret code for Chinny Chin Chin? Okay, so right now, between you and me, promo code Chin 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 Chinny. That's Chin 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 Chinny. We'll give you free walks by Chinny Chin Chin. Amazing. This episode is brought to you by Chinny Chin Chin. And don't forget, promo code Chin 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 Chin. For free, for free walks. Yeah. 